Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates, Send in the Clowns, The Phoenix Tube Company, CelebrityTrips.com, The Law Firm of Decalator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and Relish Restaurant of Kings Park. Here are your hosts. Mark and AJ. Joining us now is a man who has been labeled as the most electrifying player in Minnesota hockey history. Also skilled in football and baseball, he starred for five years at both defense and center for the War Road High School hockey team. He led War Road to the 1969 state tournament. He went on to play for the 1972 silver medal USA Olympic hockey team. Went on to play six seasons of professional hockey, always with the headband to match his uniform. That's the one thing I messed up with, AJ. Yeah. I, I no headband. Won a red, and you need move. a headband. I definitely Need really a, uh, do need a headband uh, to match his uniform. It's a thrill to welcome the man they called the chief, Henry Boucher, to WLIE Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Henry. Well, thank you, Mark. I appreciate you having me on tonight. It's, uh, it's always a pleasure to be uh, be on the on the radio with you. It's our pleasure. And, you know, I, I did say welcome, Henry, but perhaps I should have said OBGWA or Wapi Moegan. Uh, can you tell our... You practiced that a lot. I did practice, and I still screwed it up, right. I'm sure. But can you tell our audience a little bit about those two other names and how your views on your Native American heritage have changed over the years? Well, uh, let me start off. When I was growing up, you know, we uh, we didn't have TV. We had a theater in town and back in the early 50s and, and mid-50s. And, you know, to go to a, go to a theater and watch the type of movies that were made then, the Westerns and John Wayne type movies where, you know, the Indians were depicted as drunks and stupid and, and um, you know, uh, basically not in a good way. I was embarrassed. I used to sink in my seat. And I, I didn't want to learn my, my heritage. I didn't want to learn my language. My mother wanted to teach me Ojibwe, uh, you know, some of the culture and traditions, and I was embarrassed to learn them. And, and I think most of the Indian kids during that time, uh, you know, kind of felt the same way. And uh, it wasn't until years later that, you know, after uh, Clyde Belcourt and, and some of the other ones took over Wounded Knee and, you know, brought the, the uh, culture into, the, you know, the limelight, basically, and we could do our ceremonies, uh, you know, on public and rather than have to do them in the woods and, you know, in, in out-of-the-way places and what have you, uh, you know, started to get uh, my heritage back and learn more about the culture. And uh, I received my Indian name from Roger Jordan. Uh, it's Ogidjada, which means warrior. Roger Jordan was uh, the chairman of Red Lake Indian Reservation for about 40 years, and he sat with a lot of presidents. He... Uh, uh, you know, political politically, he uh, uh, ran the forefront for a lot of the the Indian people and tribes throughout the United States, and set some pretty good policy. But uh, I was very honored to to receive that name, and then later on, I I received my second name, and you can have more than one. Uh, Wapi Maigan, which is uh, the White Wolf, I received that from a medicine man up in Saskatchewan uh, during the ceremony. And most recently, I, I received my third one, which is Kija Nange, which, which means uh, uh, one that sits at the center of the universe, the feathered one that sits at the center of the universe, surrounded by other spirits. 
and talks about kindness. That's not a bad name to have. And I use sure. <laughs> and I use those during the ceremony or when I give speeches. It, it, you know, because you when you get up and talk, the Indian way is to uh, tell your Indian names and you know how you got them and where you're from and and you know what clan you're from and you know and then you and then you you know get into your your speech and what have you but that's that's the proper way to do things so i've learned quite a bit over the last uh maybe 20 years uh you know about my culture and you know very proud of it and and continued to fight for you know advocacy and and uh, human rights through different uh different boards and uh you know different uh uh, things that come up over over a period of the year, uh, whether it's uh, racism or discrimination and what have you. So it's uh, you know it's a challenge always, and, and you know it's alive and well. And you know somebody's got to stand up for these kids and and do the right thing. You know, I mentioned in the open about your early days in War Road. There are two main products produced in War Road, and that's Windows and Hockey Players. It's the headquarters of Marvin Windows, but it's also produced 80 Division I players, seven Olympians, five NHL players, all from a town of less than 2,000 people. Well, that's what happens when you don't have television. <laughs> I guess. What is it about War Road that helps reduce so many hockey players per capita? Well, I think it's the free ice time that we provide for the for the. You know, for the kids, we have two two ice rinks there. They're going full time. We just built a training center that hooked on to the uh, uh, the Olympic arena that we have in Warroad, and and you know, to do the fundraisers and and uh, you know, it's a community effort. Uh, Marvin Windows, of course, uh, you know, provides a lot of uh, I guess a lot of resources uh, for the community through donations and what have you. But, you know, the parents, uh, you know, we have all volunteer coaches. I think, you know, the tradition started back in the, you know, in the 40s, and we started playing hockey back there in the 20s and 30s. You know, outdoor rinks, it was 20, 30 below. We skated on the river. Um, and the fans stood, in the, you know, on the snow banks. And, you know, it just... Uh, uh, you know, it just caught on, and and uh, and once we built the the old barn in 1947, it was natural ice. Uh, we didn't have a zamboni; we scraped it. We would flood at night, and then the ice was would remain the same throughout the whole day, with all of these different teams skating on it. And then, because you couldn't, uh, you know, we pulled a, a two fifty gallon barrel full of hot water around with a rag out the back. And that's how you flooded it, and you couldn't do that between periods or between games because there wasn't enough time. So we basically skated on the same ice with the ruts in it, and, and we had kids, uh, you know, scrape the rink off between periods and you know between games, and that's the way we played. And it was if it was twenty below outside, it was twenty below inside. But you know, it was uh, we didn't know any better, and and you know during those times we. Didn't have snowmobiles, computers. Uh, we didn't have color TV. We had black and white TV, but we had to make our own fun. And, uh, you know, that was, you know, honing our skills. Whenever we went down on the river, skated in the ditches, uh, shoveled a rink off, we we played road hockey with a taped-up snooze can, so we didn't have any equipment and you know, run up and down the road and, uh, you know, stick handle and have a good time. And, 
And that's all we did, you know, all winter, basically, except go to, go to a movie here and there. And, you know, we spent a lot of time at the arena, public skating and watching the World Lakers and the Christian Brothers play. And, and we had some great teams come in. We had Norway come in, the Czechs, uh, Canadian national team. We had the U.S. Olympic teams come in there, the U.S. national team. So it was, um, you know, you try to emulate those players and, uh, you know, you saw how each level, you know, as you, you start off as a Wee or Bantam or went into high school and you, you strive for, you know, to wear that uniform. Basically, when I was probably eight years old, I realized that we had a travel team and, and I worked my damnedest to to be able to wear that uniform and represent your family and community or, you know, in other, in other communities as we, you know, travel to play. And... Uh, and we didn't play that many games, probably played 10 or 12 games. And we had, you know, Merle hockey Wednesdays and Saturdays, but we were always skated. You know, it was, uh, it was fun. We skated on the river and it was, uh, you know, just during those times and when uh, we had to make our own fun. You know, they point to that 1969 state championship as maybe the greatest game in Minnesota high school history. Uh, to put that matchup in perspective, uh, Dinah is. Uh, you know, War Road had 336 students in their secondary school. Adina had 5,081. Right. So think basically the, I'm thinking the Hoosiers. Exactly. Yeah, you're looking at that and you're the saying this looks the Hoosiers. hockey version of right. Hoosiers. Adina was 24 and 1. War Road was 21 and 4. Uh, do you remember what the feeling in the locker room was and what Coach Dick Roberts said to you guys prior to that game? That's quite a few years ago. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I remember I remember the sequence of events. We were living in War Road, Hockey Town, USA, up on on the Canadian border on Lake of the Woods, and we played our playoffs in Bemidji, which is two and a half hours away. And we had to leave school, get on a school bus, and put all our equipment in the back, and ride down there two and a half hours, and then play the game. We did that on Tuesday night, and we would get back at 11.30 at night on a cold bus and uh, then have to go to school the next day, and then we'd practice. And then on Thursday, we did the same trip again because we were in the semifinal. And then uh, we won that game and got back again at 11.30 and had to go to school on Friday practice and then on Saturday we went down for the section eight uh, championship game which we lost two to one but during that time uh, there were supposed to be eight sections and being represented in the state tournament so there were eight teams but section three didn't have any teams at that time so section seven and section eight runner runner-ups were able to play a one-game playoff game to get to fill that spot. So when we lost that game on on Saturday, we we knew we had another chance, and we took Sunday off. And then on Monday, we made a three and a half hour trip down to Hibbing, Minnesota, to play the runners up to Section Seven, and that went into double overtime, and we ended up winning that one to get into the state tournament. So we were exhausted by the time we got back to World. Um, we were able to stay overnight, thank God, and then went back the next day and then packed up and, and then drove 
seven hours to the state tournament in St. Paul. We stayed in St. Paul, but the, the tournament actually played was played at the Metropolitan Sports Center in Minneapolis or Bloomington. And we ran up against uh, Minneapolis Southwest and beat them 4-3. And it was a warm arena, and we weren't used to that. Uh, it was a full house, 16,000 people for a high school game, which is pretty amazing. Um, and then we were in the semifinals, and we ended up winning the semifinal game 3-2. to two. That put us in the finals against Edina, which is one of the richest communities in Minnesota. And, uh, you know, a large school, and, and um, we I got hurt during the second period uh, with a high elbow that broke my eardrum. And it slammed my head up against the glass, and I was taken to the hospital. And But we had a good team. We ended up 4-4 at the end of regulation, went into overtime, and lost it to Edina 5-4 in double over, or Yeah, maybe it was double overtime. But anyway, it was... Uh, uh, you know, it was one hell of an experience for a 17-year-old to be playing in front of, you know, 15, 16,000 people standing room only in each and every game. And and uh, it was something that I'm always going to remember as one of my highlights in my career. But, uh, you know, during that time, you know, you, you try to stay positive. It was hard sleeping. You play three games in three nights. And... Uh, you know, you're bound to, you know, be a little tired, especially after the week before when we went through to, to get there. And uh, for someone who just tried to stay positive, Dick Roberts was, um, you know, a fine coach. Uh, uh, you know, had us uh, kind of isolated because he didn't want us to get distracted, uh, you know, with the job we had to do each and every day. Do you ask the what if, what if you hadn't been injured early in the second period of that game? Do you think that? You would have won. You would have beaten Adina. Well, no, well, not only that. Up until the time he was injured, yeah. he had played all but twenty-four seconds of that yeah. tournament, which is it, it was yeah. unbelievable. And that's a great question. Do you ever ask that? What if you you know game went into overtime without you? So with you there, it's a good shot that you guys would have upset them. Well, you know, I'm kind of a humble person. I, <laughs> you know, you'd like to think that, but you know, you you don't know for sure. Um, you know, Edina was a great uh, had a great team, and and uh, certainly you got to give a lot of credit to you know their team and and uh, and our team. It was a great show. Uh, it was one of the best and most exciting electrifying tournament uh, games in in Minnesota high school league history. And just you know, I was just happy to to be there and be part of it. From what I read, and. Uh, but, you know, you just don't know what the outcome would have been. And, uh, a lot of people talk about it still. And, Absolutely. Uh, I go to state tournaments now, and I run into a lot of people that remember the name, and, you know, we visit. And, you know, I have a book out, so I set up a, um, you know, a, a display down there with my medals and jerseys and what have you, and then I sell my books. And so it's always busy, and, you know, people stopping by saying hello and, and uh, reminiscing about the 69 tournament. 
If you just tuned in, we're talking with Minnesota hockey legend Henry Boucher. You know, as the Winter Olympics draw nearer, hockey fans such as myself start to think about Olympic hockey. And while the 1980 team will always be known as the Miracle on Ice team, the 1960 team probably known as the Forgotten Miracle team, the 1972 team could be called the completely overlooked miracle. That U.S. team that you were on was expected to finish fifth behind the Soviet Union, Czechoslovakia, Sweden, and Finland. Uh, do you remember being told uh, that you made the Olympic team and what your reaction to that was? Well, I uh, I was playing junior hockey when I was 18, right out of high school in Western Canada for the Winnipeg Jets. Um, and they were putting, Murray Williamson and Harold Trumbull were putting together the 72 Olympic team at that point. They had to take a team to Bucharest, Romania and the World B championships to win that tournament uh, in order for us to qualify for the 71 World Championships and then the, the Olympics in Sapporo. And I was picked to, to uh, play on that team and very honored that, uh, you know, Herbie Brooks was, uh, that was the last team he played on, you know, as a player. And, uh, and we ended up winning that and um, winning a gold medal in 1970 in Bucharest and and uh, so it qualified us to play in the World Championships. And then I went back and finished the season with, with Winnipeg and then uh, went home and I worked at Marvin Windows that summer and I got drafted in the United States Army during the Vietnam War and I thought it was all over. I called Murray Williamson up and he said, don't worry about it, we're working with the Pentagon. There's four or five of you guys that are in the same situation that we need to you know, strike up some kind of deal. So um, he was able to do that, and, and I went through basic training that summer in Fort Knox, Kentucky, and then I was assigned to the Metropolitan Sports Center uh, for the remainder of, of the our season or the winter up through the 71 World Championships, and then I would go back in to the Army, um, you know, in April, uh, through September, and, uh, and then I got off of the Olympics, uh, you know, on a TDY with no expense to the government other than the base pay. So um, so I was able to play in the Olympics, and I was drafted by Detroit in 1971, and, and um, I couldn't sign with them because I was in the Army, and I had to, I had to wait a year or two. Uh, but it enabled me to play in the Olympics, and... Uh, Nobody really had, uh, after a poor showing in, in the 71 World Championship, we did beat Czechoslovakia the first game, 5-1, to one, and we had played in Prague uh, a couple of exhibition games prior to that. And the, and the games were in Bern and Geneva, Switzerland, double round robin. And we ended up getting banged up pretty bad. We had a lot of injuries. I think we had four or five key injuries and and we just couldn't hang with the big boys and, um, you know, lost uh, all but two games, I think, uh, you know, during that, during that uh, round robin. And so nobody had a lot of faith in us, um, you know, as, as a team during that time. And we had a lot of, we had a core bunch of players. But the problem was is that, you know, we were, um, you know, bringing players in and out uh, all the time uh, from different colleges and, and trying to find the right mix. And we played a 40, 50 game schedule on 71. Um, 
you know, prior to 71 World Championships, and then we did the same thing prior to the Olympics. And, and um, we finally found the right mix, and, and uh, uh, we took uh, some of the Russian uh, tactics as far as, you know, uh, weightlifting, off-ice training, dry land training, stretching, to try to prevent injury, you know, up to the Olympics and, and played other sports. We took the soccer ball around, we played basketball, we played racquetball. Then we'd go on the ice for three hours and, and try to develop that, that system that the Russians were so well known about because they practiced six hours a day, 11 months a year. Uh, they were the Red Army team, basically, subsidized by the government. And, uh, you know, so we, we got partway there anyway, and we were playing a lot better, playing with a lot of confidence prior to, prior to the Olympics and, uh, you know, gave it our best shot. And, you know, there were some weird things that happened during the Olympics. Like Sweden, you know, tied Russia the first game 3-3. They were expected maybe to win the gold. And they kind of fell apart during during the tournament. I, there were some internal things that happened that I didn't know about during that time, but I found out later when I played with Tony Bergman in Detroit that uh, there were some internal stuff that went on. And and Sweden had lost to Finland in years, and Finland ended up upsetting them. And we beat uh, we beat Finland. We beat uh, Czechoslovakia. We beat. Uh, uh, Poland, so we ended up with a 3-2 record and uh, tied with the Czechs, but we beat the Czechs, so it elevated us in a second when uh, Finland beat Sweden. Right, and you ended up it, with the uh, you know, it, was a, it was a strange thing. And it was, you know, we were so far away, there's hardly anything on tape any, anywhere. Um, you know, we didn't have the satellite system, uh, wide world sports left before we even got on the podium. And we expected a big, you know, show when we flew back in from um, Sapporo to Anchorage to Chicago, and we all wore medals off the plane, and there was nobody there. And like I said, that is, is going to be known as the, the forgotten miracle. Uh, you mentioned that you were drafted by the Red Wings after two seasons with the Red Wings, 34 goals over the 159 games. You traded back to your hometown in Minnesota. The first 51 games of the season, you score 15 goals. Then your career takes a huge turn. January 4th, 1975, the North Stars are at home against the Bruins. Early in on that game, you get into a fight with Dave Forbes. After you both serve the five-minute major penalties in the penalty box, Dave Forbes immediately attacks you, hit you in the eye with the butt end of the stick, opening up a 25-stitch gash. Your eye socket was badly fractured. You never really um, fully regained sight in that ear. Um, It pretty much effectively ended your career. Forbes got a 10-game suspension. However, he was subsequently (coughs) indicted for aggravated assault for his on-ice antics. It was a landmark case as it was the first time a hockey player ever faced legal consequences for his actions during a National Hockey League game. What, if anything, do you remember from that night? Well, you know, he was, you know, when I played with Detroit, I was playing on a line with Red Baron from Billy Collins, and we were the checking line. So we prevented, tried to prevent all of the, the top lines in the National Hockey League from scoring. So I was a defensive player then, and then when I moved over to the North Stars, I was on the top two scoring lines. So Dave Forbes was an up-and-down minor league player that uh, Don Cherry brought up. And... Uh, 
he was assigned to shadow me throughout the game, and he was trying to be intimidating, and I, I wasn't intimidated by him at all, but, you know, he was on my heels all the time, and, he, you know, he'd grab me once in a while or shoot an elbow at my, my arm or flash me or something, and, you know, it got to a point where, you know, he started getting a little braver, and he ran, ran me in the corner or tried to, and I, I had the ability to stop real quick. And, you know, I made a miss. And uh, then we got into an altercation, altercation and, I, and I got the best of him in a fight. I dropped him, and, and uh, Terry Riley jumped on my back. We go in the penalty box for two and a five-minute major. And we can't come out until play had stopped. And uh, Bobby Orr got a five-minute major. He was in the box with uh, Dave Forbes at that time. And once play had stopped, I, we both stepped on the ice. I looked at him to see if he was going to do anything, and it didn't appear that, you know, he just looked away. So it didn't appear threatening or like he was going to do anything. So then I turned and I looked at our, our bench to see whether I should stay in the ice or come off, and then Murray Oliver was in front of me. He said, look out. And as I turned my head around, Forbes came up with a butt of the stick sticking out of his glove, and he threw a punch, caught me above the eye, cut me for 30 stitches, and blew my cheekbone out. But it damaged all the muscles around the eye. So my eyes then couldn't work together uh, as a unit. So I would, you know, then it caused double vision. And the other problem was my depth perception was off. And, you know, after seven surgeries, I, uh, you know, it just takes the wind out of your sails. It, uh, you know, I just, um, you know, you play for the love of the game, and, and when something like that happens, um, you know, something happens to you. Um, you know, mentally, um, you know, I just, I just didn't have it. I just didn't feel like I could play like I, I used to because, you know, I couldn't see out of my right side very well. Um, uh, although physically, you know, I could skate, I could, uh, I could maneuver with the puck because, you, you know, you felt the puck. But when I looked down at the puck or a pass was coming on my right side, I couldn't judge the, the distance or the speed of the puck. And I'd put my stick down and the puck would already be by it. And then I'd lose the puck in my skates and Thank God, you know, some of the teams that, you know, you could get run over, um, you know, kind of just backed off and, and, uh, and I, you know, they didn't uh, go come after me as, as, as they normally would if, you know, if I had good eyesight. So that became a pretty celebrated court case, and it ended in a hung jury. Uh, no it ended in a hung jury. What happened is that Gary Flackney at the Hennepin County Attorney's Office uh, was outraged by Clarence Campbell giving him a 10-game suspension without pay. And the reason was is that it was on television back in Boston, on television here, uh, full house at the Metropolitan Sports Center. You know, the reason is, is that, you know, these kids are going to watch this game, and they're going to be allowed to, or they're going to think they're going to be allowed to uh, use their stick as a weapon. If somebody did that on the street, hit somebody with a stick, it would be aggravated assault, and you'd probably get a year in jail plus a fine. Why 
in the world where the National Hockey League let this happen on the ice. And that was the big stickler. Um, you know, if, if you're going to allow this, then the kids are going to pick it up. And who's going to take the responsibility, uh, of, you know, of, of their action? If you're going to allow this. So that was one of the reasons. And, and uh, you know, this is the first time in any sport that a, a player had been indicted for aggravated assault on any playing field, court, or ice. And um, it was quite a remarkable case. And... Uh, it resulted in a hung jury. There were 12 juries. Jurors, uh, 10 wanted, uh, 10 wanted the conviction. One said no and the other one abstained. And they just couldn't, they couldn't, uh, convince, uh, the other two to come with the other 10. So it resulted in a hung jury. They felt that they got the word across and, and it, was never retried, and um, and life went on. We're up against a break, so I just want to ask you one last question. Currently, you're on a mission to tell the tales of Native American Olympic athletes via a planned series of one-hour documentaries. Sort of the likes of figure skater Naomi Lang, marathoner Frank Pierce, boxer Virgil Hill, synchronized swimmer Mary Hillman, hockey player T.J. Oshie, who, if I am not mistaken, is related to you, and probably the most famous Native American Olympian of them all, all-star track star Jim Thorpe. How did the idea for this film project come about, and where are you right now in the process. we got about a minute before we have to hit the break. Okay, I have Boucher Films. I'm a realtor uh, full-time, but I have Boucher Films. We're doing a 21-part series called Native American Olympians. This idea came in 1992 when there was 10 of us honored down at the Gathering of the Nations powwow down in Albuquerque, and on the way back I came up with the idea, but I was raising a family in Warroad. Uh, working in education, selling real estate and what have you. And I just never really could find anybody that had the passion for something like this because we need to get these produced and, and on air because of the motivation for our kids. We need to do it for our people. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's really a passion. And, and we're in uh, pre-production right now. We uh, are uh, excited about it and uh, you know, we're uh, working every day on, on some part of it. But uh, that's where the idea came from, and it's been, you know, sitting on the shelf all these years. When I was up in Alaska, I wrote the book, Henry Boucher, Ojibwe, Native American Olympian. Uh, it's part of the series, and you can buy that on Amazon.com. And uh, look for our, our Native American Olympians project coming out. and. Uh, we're very excited about it, and you know it's a, it's a big project, and it's very difficult to to pull all this together. We look forward to seeing that, Henry. Thanks so much for your time tonight. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate you having me on. Our pleasure, Henry Boucher, 1972 USA Olympic hockey Minnesota hockey legend.